0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Collegians YYC, Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me again for another good old-fashioned chat. Quick heads up before you dive in. We had some light, I say, quote-unquote, audio challenges with this episode, specifically on my audio. Technology's been amazing through COVID to allow us to talk to people everywhere in the world, but every once in a while, we get a glitch. Rather than not air the episode, we decided to air it anyways because the insights that Tiffany Kaminsky from Cement was able to share, they're inspiring, they're insightful, and it gives you a little bit of a peek inside a company that's doing amazing things in our city. So I apologize in advance. I still think it's well, it's well worth a listen, and trust me, we will do better next time. Thank you, everyone. Enjoy the show. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with our newly minted relationship with Sate Corporate Training. After 18 months and hundreds of conversations with the leaders, innovators, and the movers and shakers in our city, two things have become abundantly clear. The future of work has arrived, and it always has been all about the people. So whether you're an individual looking to upskill or an organization looking to reskill an entire division, SAIT has the team, the curriculum, and more importantly, the advisors to partner with you to build what you need to adapt for the road ahead. Do yourself a favor and take the time to learn a little bit more. Check them out at www.sate.ca slash corporate training. And more importantly, give them a call, have a consultation, and find out what Sate can do for you. Awan Collisions, YYC, welcome to Ms. Tiffany Kaminsky. How are you, Tiffany? I'm doing well, Tyler. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and we've been having a good old chit-chat here. So as per usual, I thought I'd better push record so we don't run (laughs) into things to talk about. You are the co-founder and chief marketing officer at Cement. So I'm going to start off with a bold congratulations on, like, you guys have been on my radar for a few years, some, like, awesome successes, and you're, having you on the show is kind of the epitome of what the show is about. (laughs) How do we tell these amazing stories in Calgary that aren't always getting the press or getting the light of day, and you guys have been getting a lot more recently, that need to to let people know that there's some really cool things going on in this city. So for starters, kudos to the awesome work you guys are doing.
1: Oh, thank you so much, and definitely uh, very honored to be joining you on your podcast.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's... I don't love reading out the long biographies and the whole, you know, <laughs> I always find that's a, an awkward way to start a conversation, but let's start with um, Cement. Tell us a little bit, your point of view, your co-founder, so obviously you had your hand on the controls very, very early on. Talk about what what's Cement all about, and then we'll pivot into our topic for the day, which is brand and marketing in Western Canada.
1: Excellent. So really Cement, I mean, maybe going back to, to where we started and how we were founded is we started with why. Very similar to Simon Sinek. It's not what you do. It's not how you do it. It's why you do it. Um, And our why was really crystal clear for us is we wanted to help at-risk consumers, so people who fall behind on their bills. Um, Because when we really dug in and looked at the problem statement and did a ton of research, it was such an old and status quo industry that hadn't changed in decades. And coming to the problem, both myself and my co-founder, Hanif had a very personal connection where Hanif actually came over as a refugee, so remembers firsthand dealing with collection agencies. And when you come from a country with no access to credit – to one that does there's a huge gap um for myself thinking back to my university days where you get your first visa you move around a bit it's very easy to fall through the cracks and that follows you you know seven years later if you've got that mark on your record when you want to buy a car or a house or finance a business um there's a really material long-term impact and i think really financial literacy in schools it is a bit of a gap as it stands today so i think it's a it's a problem that we really resonated with on a personal level and a pain point that we wanted to address and that's really where cement was born.
0: And I've had the privilege of having a conversation with your co-founder that, unfortunately, I, I shared with you was one of the episodes <laughs> that the audio we had. Did, due to COVID, amazing things happened. But we also sometimes found out how um, unreliable our internet connections were. He chatted about that to me in terms of how much research you guys did and how much you went out and actually connected with the, custom, the your target audience to understand what pain you could solve for them. And I think... When you talk about brand and marketing in Western Canada, as companies look to expand and to sell to new customer groups, whether in the province or outside. But I've talked to a lot of companies that they're stepping outside of our borders for the first time and really understanding. So, you know, as a marketer, but also a co-founder, I guess I'm curious of your journey as that was coming together. So much of what you were doing, I would imagine, in the early days wasn't necessarily marketing in maybe the conventional sense that we think about it, about go to market and you know put out campaigns and do that, but it was thinking about that actual product market fit. So you know, as a marketer, in your mind, how important is that side of understanding that before you even worry about what color the logo is, to be blunt?
1: <laughs> no, that's yeah. an excellent question and I think you nailed it with product market fit is probably one of the most important things as you start any venture, any business. Um, when we first started the company, we started with, you know, a million dollars and it was, we personally led it and very much a friends and family around. So we didn't have a lot of runway in terms of our bold aspirations of what we wanted to build and the vision for the organization. Um, when we started, we actually used the Strategizer series, which I highly, highly recommend. Um, it kind of gives you your business on a page. And one of the things we also did is, geez, for the first, I want to say six months, we didn't build anything. We had no product. We didn't build a thing. We did exactly that is we went through a strategizer series and we reached out and were really vulnerable in our outreaches. So we did email campaigns and LinkedIn email campaigns, reaching out to every telco utility um, and financial institution in North America, which is really our target market, and said, hey, this is our vision of what we want to build. You are the experts. You know this domain. We just want to you know, get you on a call for 15 minutes and understand your pain points. And we had over 100 calls, I would say um, to really narrow it and see, okay, this is our premise. What are the pain points? Does something exist today? Does it not? How do we fill that gap? Um, so really uncovering that to make sure that when we did go to build a product, we built the right thing. Cause as everyone knows, it's uh, it's pretty expensive to build a, a product and you want to make sure you're building the right product. And ideally, um, trying to avoid as many pivots as you can down the road.
0: Yes, piv- piv- pivots equal like, equal cost, and like you said. <laughs> a, a million dollars might sound like a lot when you flip it off the tongue, but when it comes to building something, that that burn and that runway can disappear pretty quickly. And I think what you guys did, and what I'm hearing, and I've heard from so many people, is fall in love with the problem, don't fall in love with the solution. And, you know, curious, when you reached out, were companies really quick to get back to you? Because oftentimes I've heard from founders like, oh, they, the quote-unquote, we stay in our basement too long. We stay with our idea and we, and we kind of hyper-focus on our idea, but we're maybe a little reluctant or we're fearful that people aren't going to give us that feedback, good or bad. But, with, you know, obviously you said you were able to have conversations. People weren't, they didn't shy away from talking to you. No,
1: right? they didn't. Honestly, I think we were a bit overwhelmed at first with the number of people who were willing yeah. to talk to us. And I think again, it goes back to that One of our core values is lead with empathy. And we were really vulnerable that, hey, we've got nothing to sell you. We don't have a product. We just really want to pick your brain. Can you help out some young entrepreneurs? And, you know, we were really surprised by the uptake of the number of people who did want to help. And we're open to having, you know, a 15 minute call, which often led to an hour call. And actually, some of our first clients ended up um, coming from that initiative. Because, of course, as you start to learn more and get people excited about the vision of the organization, it gave us a pool to go back to afterwards when we actually had something to sell.
0: Well, from from a sales perspective, what a fantastic way to get people involved in the solve. And I don't know about you, but when you're presenting, and people can see their own fingerprints on the deck or (laughs) on the storyline or on the product. That's huge as humans because we want to feel we were part of something, and that it, again, you can get all complex with analytics and how you're measuring everything. But at the end of the day, we're still humans, so we can be a bit messy. But that ability for us to get involved and see that our impact, that our input was actually taken and valued, that's still that actualizes us. It's still, it's you're never going to hinder that as a bad strategy.
1: Absolutely. And it was really some of those, those brand advocates that were a part of our journey and really had a big influence on, on the product that we offer today um, that helped us along the way. We continue to look at what are those advocate groups of our clients that as we're testing betas, as we're building new platforms, um, our 2.0 version, for example, we really value their opinions and they're a part of our journey.
0: You shared something with me earlier that I, I didn't know, and it was more just because I didn't know that you guys white label, which makes sense now yes. that I hear that. With all, so you've got some interesting stakeholder groups when you talk about the end customer being technically your client's customer, Correct. but who's also you know your customer. But you're there to provide this almost seamless. Does does your does the layer of your service does it does it should it or does it just disappear into the process in terms of? It, and I say that, it sounds so I'm backing out of my words here. You don't want it to disappear, but I'm assuming from an end customer's perspective, it needs to be just a seamless part of their interaction. It can't be this like, oh, here's another gate to have to go through kind of kind of mindset.
1: Absolutely. No, you, and you, you really hit on it because it's white labeled. Everything looks and feels as though it's the brand of ABC Telco. I'll just use that as an example. So it needs to meet those requirements and we go through a long process from their digital review boards, their legal teams, their marketing and communications teams to make sure we're being true to the brand of our clients as we're reaching out to their customers. And that's something that, you know, we not only want to make sure that we're maintaining, but we're improving over time is how do we make sure we're making the life of that at risk customer or their customer better? But in doing it, how are we strengthening their brand by taking that really empathetic and positive approach?
0: I appreciate that. No, I, I can only imagine because these are large enterprise, they large, are. we've done it this way for a long time companies and just the amount of stakeholder groups and compliance and <laughs> governance that you'll need to go through. I, I empathize with that, with that, with that journey. Um, curious and maybe I'm not sure if this is a, this is a uh, secret sauce question, but how much do you, do you customize versus how much is it that, no, this is our proven process? Cause I can only imagine each one of these groups have very clear views of like, no, no, I think it should do, I think it should do this. So as someone who's looking at that product market fit constantly, Mm -hmm. how much are you able to shift versus how much do you guys say, well, actually, no, this is our proven process. Just thinking about companies going out into new markets, you can sometimes get bullied by your new potential new customers if you let it happen. (laughs) That's maybe the right, maybe not a nice way to say
1: it. Absolutely. I mean, when you're just getting started out and you know, you've only got a couple of customers, I think that you, you kind of fall to that whim more than you probably should. Now that we've grown up a lot from where, where we started. And um, we definitely looked at, you know, we don't want to be a custom dev shop. We want to build a product. Good. And in order to do that, certainly there, there's some level of customization, especially when you work with, you know, the major enterprise clients that we do. Um, but that being said, we, we put a ton of resources and energy into building our standardized playbooks, to productizing them, to making sure we've got the algorithms to help support the strategies we put forward, and that it's run through in a very scalable fashion through our product.
0: I like that we're not a custom dev shop. We're providing a certain solution. And the longer runway you're in the game, the more you can say, well, no, actually, this is what will work the best because we're the experts on this on this actual solution. Versus when you're new, you can uh, often are defined by what you say no to. It's easy. As <laughs> entrepreneurs, it's easy to say yes to everything. Oh, yes. <laughs> Gu- yes, been guilty many times. So curious, just on the going out and reaching out to the, to, you know, North America, I'm assuming, are you guys North, are you guys beyond North America or right now is North America your core?
1: We are beyond North America now. We actually also, um, have teams in APAC and Cala.
0: Oh, fantastic. How, um, when you first did that initial reach out, you guys were calling from Calgary? We were. Did anyone ask about where the 403 was from or did you have any hindrance or was that any kind of an obstacle or or, or a positive when you were going out and you're like, and who are you and where are you calling from? Was that even a factor for you guys if we think about it as, you know, our uh, cities have brands, countries have brands, provinces have brands?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think at that time, you know, it wasn't a strong part of our narrative, admittedly, just because we were just getting started. Um, That being said, I think that as we position ourselves now is, I think it's pretty incredible to look at, you know, we chose to start this company in Calgary for a lot of reasons. Um, You know, it's a great ecosystem and certainly a budding and growing one. If we look at the stack that we build on, there's a lot of parallels. If we look at skill set that we can pull over from the oil and gas um, in terms of building our teams. um, And certainly if you look at even quality of life in Calgary, it's pretty incredible even starting to see a lot of expats move back because of that quality of life and bring the expertise they bring over. Um, so I think it's very much a, a value prop now as we've gotten a lot bigger. And something we're really proud of is, you know, we're based here. There's tons of efficiencies that we can gain. So if we think of how we serve our end clients, the amount of R and D and throughput we can get is much higher than if we were based in the valley, for example.
0: Just because the sheer, just because the sheer overhead that that is there just to keep the lights on, right? exactly at that, most, at that simple level. You touched on talent, and this is a conversation I've had with many people on the show. Is you know, and I like what you said. How do we, or how have you been able to take some of this very skilled labor from a different sector? We'll just keep it simple: oil and gas, or the energy sector. That these are seasoned professionals that maybe are miss. They have maybe seven of the skills, but maybe they're missing three of the skills that you guys might need. How have you been able to, has that been a deliberate effort? And do you guys have a mechanism in place to help those individuals kind of fill in the blanks for the areas that they don't have past experience in?
1: Absolutely. And I think that's something, well, especially in Miss COVID, where we hire the best person for the role, regardless of location. 80% of our team is still based in Calgary. Our headquarters is still awesome. based in Calgary. Um, and that's something we're really, really proud of. But at the same time, we've also looked at opening it up to global scale, because where we do have potential deficits and skill sets... Bringing on some of those really seasoned leaders, and this is something that we've done in the last year, is we've really built out our executive team with bringing in some top tier talent. that then helps to educate and build a world class org right here in our own backyard. And that's something we've also put a lot of time and energy in. And huge shout out to our HR team is you know bringing people on board. To your point, you know they've got seven of the ten skills, for example. Um, you know we've got a week fully immersive onboarding liftoff session. So you learn everything about our organization, you go through every sector, so you get a holistic view. And then in terms of each deep dive into organization, we've got additional training sessions. Um, So if you're a sales rep, you go through our Ignite program, for example, so you know everything you need to about our domain, our target market, and it helps to fill a lot of those gaps. And additionally, we do invest in our team and making sure continued education is a big piece of the puzzle to make sure that if there are areas that we need to, to level up, that we're providing the adequate training and support.
0: Fantastic. Um, well, I think I talked to Hanif, Hanif, I should say, probably about a year and a bit ago. And at that point, I think it was 120 new hires were, were scheduled in the next little bit. How, where, where, what are you guys at now for headcount and how much has that grown over the last... I'm, 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 I'm harkening way back to an episode that doesn't even exist for reference, but I believe it was a decent number. And this was like in the first few weeks of COVID that was like, no, no, we plan to grow this much. And how has been the last year for you guys in growth? Has it like has I guess COVID has it had an impact on you guys, and what has been that growth that growth cycle like?
1: Yeah, no, that's an excellent question, and uh, we certainly far exceeded that. And again, I think that the team that we built is it, it really reflective of the de- demand and how we serve the clients um, that we offer our services to. Um, so we've actually geez, about a year ago, I would say we were around fifty ish. Um, probably back when you chatted with Hanif and now we're about 275. So we have hired and brought on more than 200 people and COVID. Um, and we put a lot of energy into, especially it's kind of surreal to think about most of those people we never met in person.
0: It's such an, it's, it, 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 it is almost surreal when you talk about the, you know, building these relationships and with people you've never met, but yet it seems okay. Like you and I chatting here. There was a time when I would have sat down with you in a room and we would have had a coffee and chatted, but yet you pivot and you, and you move forward. And I do love the force adaptability and, but out of that 275, 8% are still basing, basing Calgary. They are. That's, that's, that's amazing. And skill sets when it comes to marketing and, you know, obviously as a co-founder, you probably have a pretty good preview of the whole organization, but if we stay inside the marketing bucket for a second, what are some of the things or some of the gaps that you would see? And this isn't a criticism, this is reality, is like, what are we missing in Calgary when it comes to marketing, especially for organizations like yourselves and what you guys are creating?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question, Tyler. I think certainly we've got a really strong marketing pool within Calgary, which has been incredible to tap in and, and can't speak more highly of the marketing team that I'm lucky to lead. Um, One of the areas I'd say that we do fall short, and we certainly struggle to fill some gaps on our team, is when it comes to product marketing. Um, That's an area where, I mean, there is certainly a a strong, you know, there's meetup groups. um, There's definitely some very established leaders within product marketing that are well known within the ecosystem. But that being said, I, I think it's one of the areas where certainly the way we've approached it, we've looked at how do we train up some of our great team members to give them that career in product marketing, whether it's sending them out to the valley or... Um, Seattle to go through some of those pragmatic marketing courses and really level up the skills that we bring. The other thing that we've also done that's been highly effective, and I mentioned it before, is as we've leveled up our exec team, we've been able to tap into some expats. We've actually got two examples on our, our, our team that have been really strong um, advocates, especially in the area of product or product marketing, where we can then bring the experience from the Valley right back to Calgary and make sure we're leveling up our organization and training to fill that gap. Because it is an area I think we've We've been pretty challenged to really find.
0: And would you say that that's just a little bit of the, the cycle that Calgary's on, where these types of roles are being uh, are more required now, where we're more aware, or is product marketers is that a deficit? You're like. Is, is that prevalent everywhere or is, or is Calgary or we just, you know what I mean? Like if I went to Toronto, would I have the same challenge? Like I've, I'm going to find an oil and gas reservoir engineer in downtown Toronto. might be a little scarce, but I'll be able to find the <laughs> here, no problem. So sometimes, and I have a, we have a team that works in Toronto, and it's just a different talent pool because it's just more established. The industry is broader. But product marketing, I've been hearing coming up, like every second article I read is talking about it. So it feels that there's also a movement towards that globally, not just a Calgary problem. It, it, what's your experience on that?
1: Yeah, no. And I, I think, again, it would say very much on the global scale, but also just in the skill set, if you go out to the Valley, I mean, it's a highly, highly sought after skill set. Don't get me wrong. But of course, it's more prevalent there. Um, and I think it's something where we're starting to see come up a lot more just with the emergence of tech and the ecosystem growing, that it's something people are really putting a lot of value in. And the role that marketing plays in the overall process of an organization is much more interlocked and collaborative with the product versus just let's go build a website and throw up a logo.
0: Uh, yes. What an excellent. And the, the valleys just has more cycles at this than we do. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? Like just, but they've had more people that have been through the build, sell, build, rebuild, cash out, go again, that kind of a mindset. I had a few people from the valley come on and yeah, they just, you know, we're on our own path here in Alberta, but they have just been doing it for longer and they're really good at, they're really good at being the valley. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so I think you touched on something interesting. Marketing isn't just marketing. It's product, it's sales, it's the voice of the customer, the voice of the client. So when you talk about, you know, I will use cement as an example what, like kind of what are your goals as a marketing team and how does that integration work to kind of bring it all together? So it isn't just a team sitting over in the corner that, you know, does creative stuff, which I think that's (laughs) sometimes the old way to, that's the old way to look at marketing sometimes. And maybe I've run into companies in Alberta that still maybe think of marketing that way. like, Oh, we'll, we'll pull the marketing lever. And it's, but we don't really know what I'm hearing (laughs) from more companies today. Is that, Oh no, no, this is an integrated team approach.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, certainly One of the big pillars is looking at, you know, what are our revenue goals for the year? Um, And in our case, because we're very empathetically driven, how many customers do we want to help on a global scale? Um, And where do we want to tap in to help them? So a piece of that ties into certainly the strategy. When we think of go-to-market, I mentioned um, APAC and Cala. Well, those are pretty big regions. Where should we be focusing our energy and working really with our corporate strategy teams in terms of the competitive intel, um, ideal customer profiles, regulatory, making sure that... We're being really strategic about where we go. It's interesting. We can compete on a global scale, but you want to be really selective because there is a pretty heavy lift anytime you need to set that up. Um, That's certainly one piece, and that really ties into our goal when we look at overall what's our ARR goal for the year, and then how do we break that down in terms of the lead and the pipeline um, development. And what we try to really focus on is rather than the old way of thinking where Kate Marketing develops a lead, they hand it off to sales, and sales is on their own to go and close it, We have a very evolved structure where we actually have sales and marketing working within our sales and marketing motion in unison all the way through from that initial touch point to the close of the customer and beyond as we look at how do we increase share of wallet um, and really build out some of those advocacy groups that I had mentioned before. Because there's nothing more valuable than a strong testimonial case study or advocate from your client. No one can, can sell you better than your clients and those that really believe in your solution. Um, so that's one piece. And we really share and we own that ARR goal with our sales team. It's not on our sales team just to hit that. We meet, we are a very integrated piece of that process. And how do we shrink, especially because we, we serve large enterprise clients? How do we reduce the time it takes us from that first contact to closing um, on one of those and also operationalizing them so that we start serving and helping their customers sooner? So that's kind of the one bucket as it relates to more of the demand gen and a lot of the traditional marketing you would think of. Um, the other bucket we look at is our voice of the customer and our client satisfaction. So, because we're white labeled, we really tap into and look at you know how happy are our clients? They're large enterprises. If we look at you know who are our top four contacts, because certainly they there's dozens and dozens within the org. How do we make sure they're really happy? They understand the value that we bring, and how do we do more of those good things and make sure we're building a product for the future that aligns with their pain points and what they're looking for. Um, And then secondary to that is looking at the voice of the end customer, which is their clients or their customers that we serve through our solutions. So at-risk customers, how are we helping them? What is the sentiment of what they're saying? Are our digital solutions actually moving the needle? Um, And as we look through a lot of that and and the the CSAT scores that go with it, um, it's really interesting to see. And I think it's really validating going back to starting with why that, you know, we see customers coming in and saying, you know. You remove the embarrassment of having to talk to a call agent. Um, you know, I felt like I had dignity in this process. You made this much easier. I appreciate the added time or the solution that you were able to give me. That's really, really important is keeping that, that why in mind. Because if our end customer is happy, our clients are naturally going to be happy as well. And we are really working hand in hand with our product teams to make sure that we're bringing that to fruition. And it's something that's weave into the stickiness of our product.
0: Well, I, I wish I had a whiteboard because I would be drawing out your journey as you were kind of, as you were map, as you were mapping it out. That was awesome. So curious as, a, as, a, as, a, as from a messaging and sorry, I'm getting way down way down <laughs> in the weeds now because you guys are collecting and using data to identify how to help at risk customers kind of move through the process. How much access do you have to that from a way of creating the right messaging? I'm assuming that informs everything you do. Also from a messaging and marketing perspective, in terms of the words, like you said, the words that they're using being able to then speak to them in in the voice that they connect with just seems so powerful. It's like, I love the world we live in. It's like being able to almost see what your opponent's thinking on the other side of the chessboard, not that this is competitive, (laughs) but you can see the sentiment. You can see their mindset as they're going through, which allows you as a marketer to create so much better compelling messages.
1: Absolutely. And I think we take it even a step further because really the solution that we offer and what we built is, is based in science. So we pull together behavioral scientists, data scientists, neuroscientists, psychology, marketing best practices, affiliate marketing, we really pull all those domains together in our offering. And that's how we empathetically reach out to those end customers to help them through the process. Um, So messaging and how we position is highly, highly important. We actually have built a cement lab and we've had more than 10,000 participants um, go through almost 40 studies to really tap into that. And it's been interesting to see the the importance of some of those behavioral tactics and the nuances that sit within them. Um, when COVID hit, we did a ton of research because we had to revamp all of our strategies and how we communicated with customers, how we could help them through this difficult time. Call centers were getting absolutely swarmed is how do we support them through that journey um, in a time where certainly something like having access to your phone is is a very vital service, especially given the climate. Um, one of the interesting things we found and it's very foundational to our, our values and our why is being empathetic. Having empathetic outreaches um, was one of the things that drove the best results in that it is both an art and a science where there is a very fine line between when you're empathetic and you apply those behavioral principles and learnings. um, So really our strategic IP and everything that goes with it and when it comes off as being disingenuous and that's where we start to see really negative um, results. So it, it is very much an art and a science, I'd say, when we approach it.
0: Oh, it's a very slippery slope when you think about you're interacting with technology and it's, it's in pace with you. And the second it falls out of pace lately, I find that our, our forgiveness of that as customers, as the end customer is, oh man, it's a very, very fine line. It's, (laughs) and especially, you know, considering you're also often in an emotionally heightened state when you're going through some of these kind of higher pressure situations. And again, I've looked at your website in the timeline of like, everything's going great. And then job loss, illness, (laughs) you know, COVID, like the last year I think has put so many people who were well positioned into a position they never hoped or thought they would, they would they would ever be in just as humans
1: absolutely and i think that that's one of the key things and why why we take that approach of trying to really change the experiences you know bad things happen to good people <clears throat> yes
0: yeah, so and i think last year how, how much did your product shift over the last year because like you said you, you must have like literally we weren't COVID and then we were COVID, and you know your business i'm uh I can only assume it was an accelerator for companies being more aware of how they're dealing with customers that are under duress. But like you said, the nuance and the sensitivities of the messaging you were using must have literally had to change almost overnight from a product offering perspective.
1: Absolutely. I think that we actually revamped all of our strategies in the course of a week to be really responsive um, to the changing environment and the changing needs of those customers. Um, You know, we wanted to be empathetic. We needed to offer more programs. We needed to have, you know, that level of forgiveness and empathy at a time where customers needed it the most. Um, so I think just really looking at the value we were able to offer and how we were able to help customers and intern our clients through that journey um, definitely was really really important and impactful.
0: COVID, we definitely found out how fast we could get things done, right?
1: <laughs> we certainly did.
0: <laughs> six six months of strategy done in five, in, in five sleepless nights. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think if you asked me a year ago (laughs) if I was still sitting in my home office, which apparently needs some blinds today, um, I I would have said no.
0: curious about, I've been going, I was going down the Gardner rabbit hole, reading some of the reports of the day, talking about just the complexity and just the, the changes in the B2B buyer's journey. And I think this is, you know, feels relevant because we're talking about marketing and sales as a team sport, of course, with product and ultimately with customer. But the, the length of that research phase increasing, the amount of stakeholders that are involved, the amount of pressure for decision makers on our, on the client side to feel not only that you're the right choice, but that they actually made the right choice. There's a lot of interesting nuance in some of the stuff I've been reading lately on how we're, empowering those individuals and that, that, that buyer group might be 10, 11, 12 people that are all bringing their own research to the table. So curious, um, and they, you know, very bold statements as they often make that if you're not already on this train, you're going to be in trouble as a company because the buyer's process is changing so much, primarily moving to digital, not relying as much on the sales agent as they did before the statistics around, like, you know, they're going to call you or go to their website at almost the same level now to find information. Curious. Have you guys seen that? Or were you always, built purpose built that way is kind of what I've also heard you say a little bit today.
1: Yeah, we've definitely done a lot of purpose building. I would say Um, it's interesting because certainly on the enterprise side, there still is much more of that white glove treatment, I guess, and a lot more of the relationship and network selling. But as we go down kind of a tier below that, then very much to your point is making sure that the resources are available and we're optimizing based on where customers are going to find this information What are the pain points or the questions they're trying to answer and how do we make sure that our value and our brand is really aligned um, with their motivations?
0: And are you seeing coming out of COVID, has COVID shifted anything from a marketing perspective? Like Obviously, you guys did a deep dive and, and, and had to change how you delivered at your core product. But in terms of how companies buy and that amount of showing up in their office for the white glove like and <laughs> taking the time to fly in, I guess I'm always curious of kind of what has changed and, and what you see. And this, now we're getting to crystal ball territory. Of, you know, it's, it's now a year from now, and hopefully this thing is long behind us. I guess, what things will stick and what things will change and kind of what's on your horizon as, as a marketer looking to the future?
1: Yeah, my goodness. I think uh, the number of trips and the number of in-person touch points, especially given we, you know, are working with the large enterprises, I think, you know, the week before COVID hit, I had five trips for that month and that was pretty standard. Um, and certainly our, our sales team had even more. Um, so looking at how we really relied on relationship selling, not that's still not a foundational piece um, of the puzzle, but I think that Teams have been really adaptive um, in terms of adjusting to a world that is remote. How do we build relationships and build rapport online um, versus in person? How do we work around some of those challenges? Um, You know, even things like team building um, and really, you know, getting to know the people that we're working with and partnering with. We found ways. We've done a lot of digital events, whereas instead of, you know, flying out and going for dinner and really understanding and unpacking, you know, individual motives, are um, offering, how we're going to partner effectively, we're finding ways to do it in really a digital era, um, which has been interesting. And the same goes as we think of demand generation. Um, you know, we're not going to a ton of in-person trade shows or conferences um, or getting up on stage, so to speak. <laughs> um, we're finding ways to do it virtually. So I think it's going to be really interesting as we go back to more of a post-COVID world. Um, how much of that's going to stick? And again, I don't have the crystal ball either. I'm not sure. I certainly can speculate on it. Um, I think there's probably going to be, you know, the way things were, the way they are now, and probably some mix of in between. Um, But it's going to be really interesting to see what impact that has and how it evolves.
0: I, I think I like I also I, I, agree, I agree with you I like what you said about you know there is at an enterprise level there still is a lot of you know use the white glove treatment that interaction at personal you've got kind of the mid-market space where there's probably more need for automation and ways to make the process more efficient as people's lives change and, and priorities change and but you're right I think it's going to be different tiers but you're right it like so many things in marketing I, I joke I read something years ago like Radio didn't replace newspaper, TV didn't replace radio, the internet changed them all, but didn't replace it. It just actually makes the broader set of tools, toolkits, tool if you will, that much more, there's just more options on the table and finding out what's going to be the best option for that specific client group. I think that's going to be the tricky part going forward because there's going to be a bunch of, just, there's just more variables on the table than there were before.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I think we found some some creative ways, as many companies are as well. I mean, we've done a lot of you know beer tasting, wine tastings it's a great way to give back and support local and and also a great way to kind of get that social interaction that in a remote world, people are really craving.
0: Yes, we're still humans, right? And I know it's been a year, but we like, I believe we're, you know, our tendency to want to connect and want to be with people like that, you know, nothing's free. This work from home situation. I think that there was a lot of people that embraced it and did the best with it, but I'm noticing even my own culture with my team, like the fact that we're not bumping into each other in the hallways is having impact. Absolutely. like I think that the four walls that I'm staring at I like them but they're the same they're the same four walls every day and I think there's a lot to be said just the psychology you know back to what journey are we all having you know as, as humans so from a perspective of being a startup to a rapid growth to, do you guys, do you still call yourself a startup? When, when do you stop calling yourself a startup? I'm curious. Uh,
1: good question. I think jury's out on that one, but we are still very much, we would consider ourselves a startup. And really I'd say startup and in, in a very endearing way is, it's that mentality. It's how are you scrappy? How do you do more with less? How do you make sure you're staying lean and, you know, challenging and adapting and being really responsive to change? And now is a time that we certainly need to Have that on the front burner and make sure that we're staying very nimble and we're not getting slowed down by size. Um, I think that's one of our competitive advantages, quite honestly, is having that startup mentality, especially working with major enterprise where they're bogged down by a lot of that process and bureaucracy. That gives us the ability to be really adaptive and make sure that we've got an innovative solution.
0: Yeah. You being able to say, no problem. We got that. We'll, we'll get that done for you. Like, and uh, ultimately you have to make, (laughs) how do you make your end? How do you remove friction make your customer's life better or or your, and your client all at the same time? I like what you said about it. Startup is so easy sometimes. Oh, it's a size. It's a revenue number. It's actually a mindset is what I heard you say. It's a culture of like, get shit done. Sorry to use an Alberta. I'm very Alberta. I'm very Alberta quote. So thinking about that and thinking about the amount of companies, you know, globally, but we're focusing on Alberta, Calgary, but you know, like I said, we're not on an island, everybody. What advice would you give for a startup that's two people in Scrappy or a company that's 20 years old, but, but you know, is saying, you know what, we need to do things differently and we're going to get Scrappy. What are the things that, you know, you could put out there from, you know, a little bit lessons learned, but from a marketer's mindset, what, uh, what would you say to some of those companies that are looking to be that scrappy startup no matter where they are in their journey or size?
1: Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Geez, uh, many things. Um, one of them is keeping that customer-centric approach in everything you do. What is the pain? What are you solving? Start with why. And I love the way that Jeff Bezos used to have, you know, from Amazon used to have, here's the chair. This is the customer sitting at our table. What is the voice exactly. of that customer? Quite literally. <laughs> um, but I think it's an interesting mindset because when you lose sight of, the customer and the pain point that you're trying to sell for, often you just get caught up in okay, we're building a product. Um, so I think it's really important that that stays really core to you know everything that you do as an organization. Where are you going? Who are you offering your solution to? Who are you partnering with that's aligned in that vision? Um, and for us, it's very personal and wanting to make sure that we're aligned in helping that end customer, um, you know. Why do you make the decisions that you make? I think it makes it very easy when you have that framework to make decisions of, and especially our case, given we're white labeled, what is best for that end customer? What is best for our client? Um, and we want to stay really true to those values. And it's, it's really led us in the right direction and making sure we're building a product that, that's sticky and is creating that value.
0: Let the discipline of knowing what that is and doing that work up front. And I, I've certainly my own commentary. I've run into a lot of companies that no, 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 we just need to do the thing. We just need to get a campaign or we just need to launch, you know, a website is such a classic example because the website forces you to answer all of those questions. But yes. so many companies are like, no, no, we need a new website because our old one it's old. It doesn't land up. It's anymore. And, well, what do you want it to say? Well, you're the agency. I'm speaking from my own hat now. Well, you're the agency. You'll tell us what it should say. I'm like, oh, no. Like, that's like, it forces ev- everything to come out of the woodwork and find out what actually matters to you that you believe and ultimately should matter to the customer. And how do you communicate that? And I do find companies are a little reluctant. We get so tasky in terms of like, do the thing and not do that pre-work, which you guys, you know, I love what you said. The first six months, we didn't build anything. We spent that time learning. And it sounds great to hear, but when you're in the trenches and you've got, you know, shareholders and revenue goals and staff to keep in, in, in you know, in, in employment, those can be hard. It takes a lot of discipline. I just want, always want to be empathetic, but also still push. It's needed, but I get why it's, I get why it's hard. It's maybe just kind of my overall commentary on it.
1: Absolutely. And I think the one other thing, and this has been really rooted in our product and what we offer, is experimentation and iteration. Optimize it and just try stuff try stuff, constantly be experimenting, constantly be that lifelong learner. Um, You know, the way our system works is we're constantly iterating at a very high velocity with multivariant experimentation, pulling in those behavioral tactics and our strategic IP to do more of what works so that we're treating people as individualized, individuals, I should say, and being really personalized in those outreaches because just because you're a low risk customer and you're a high risk customer, it doesn't mean you're the same individual. So we're trying to do more of what works based on that really unique interaction. And I think that translates a lot into marketing as well when we think of very similar to, we're reaching out and trying to drive some of those conversions or those positive outcomes, is how do we make sure that we're constantly learning? How are we constantly testing, pushing the boundaries and iterating and optimizing on what we know? Because it changes, it's it's not static over time. And I think COVID was a prime example that really pushed that thinking.
0: it's it's always true and, and COVID exaggerated it and could have put up like a magnifying glass on, on it. So curious, but you bring when people come in from the outside, obviously you've gone from fifty to two seventy five over the last year. I would assume some of those individuals came from a place or came from companies where It wasn't try and learn. It was try and you failed. And, you know, we all talk about this. Don't be scared to fail. We got to learn. It's a little bit, you know, the tech ecosystem we're trying to create in Calgary, where we come from, you know, a large resource-based ecosystem where sometimes failure was a non-negotiable for a for a life and limb and the environment and large capital projects. But now we've got this culture of tech startups where it's like, no, 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 we're gonna try 10 things and fail at 9.5 of them. That's a different <laughs> mindset. So I'm just curious, like, and I know you talked about indoctrinating people into your culture, but that's a hard, that's a deep belief sometimes. And sometimes it, well, let's be honest, it's fear-based often. So how do you guys constantly iterate? It sounds like that is your culture. and who you are at your <laughs> core. But I guess, how do you, um the word I'm, what, what I'm looking for? Deprogram or desensitize somebody to the stigma around failure when you bring them into your team?
1: you know, it's interesting. I think that one of the key foundations is our culture. Culture trump strategy. Having those values and the values alignment in everything we do, I think gives people the latitude to be able to fail and fail fast. And one of our key values is to be bold. Let's think critically. Let's be disruptive. Let's be creative and challenge the boundaries of, you know, what is in the realm of possibility? How do we solve those complex problems with innovative solutions and make the impossible possible? We're not going to constantly get it right. To your point, if we try 10 things and 0.5 of them works, well, we're 0.5 uh, further ahead than we were when we started. Um, so I think it really comes down to the values and the culture um, and what you're empowering your team to do. Because if you do have that mindset of, okay, if you fail, then, you know, <laughs> move on to the next thing or uh, whatever that yeah. might look like. It is making sure that people feel comfortable, that let's throw every idea on the table. What is in the realm of possibility or what do we think is not possible? How do we find ways to get there and be really creative in those solutions and not be afraid to fail or learn from those mistakes?
0: As uh, you know, as, as it starts at the top, right? It starts by leading. You know, was it leading by example? Isn't the best way? It's the only way. So you know, <laughs> clearly having founders like yourselves who br- embrace that mindset, and you know, once you've got that solid anchor and that point that you can reach and go, no, no, that's who we are. It's a lot easier to attract like-minded individuals and people. You know, get get attracted to that. You know, that fifty to two seventy-five has it been a challenge for you guys in terms of find? Like, have you been able to find the people? And it was about just determining who's the right fit or has that been a real struggle to, cause that's, that's a pretty like, you know, that over over COVID and all the variables, like <laughs> you said, that, that's a real number. That's real growth. I'm, I'm, impre- I'm awesome. I'm excited for you guys.
1: Oh no, I think it's a great question. It kind of goes back to one of our goals and this was an interesting role that marketing actually played as well is not only our, our branding, Um, And, you know, making sure we're really involved in the community and it's something we're passionate about is how do we build an ecosystem in our own backyard? I think it's pretty incredible to see how it's really budding and expanding over even this past year. Um, But with that, a big piece of it was also looking at because we've got a lot of really hard to fill roles like a PhD behavioral scientist, for example, where we're competing (laughs) with literally we are competing with the apples of the world as we get offers out the door. Um, it really pushed us to, to look at what is the culture, what is the value we bring, and why would people want to join our team versus an Apple? Um, so I think that a lot of that went into <laughs> um, you know, really really starting with our culture and our values and finding that values alignment. Um, you know, we're doing really cool shit. Um, we're using some of the cutting edge technologies. That's a huge attractor. Um, If you look at the innovation and going back to that startup mindset, being able to find people, not everyone wants to be in a startup. You know, we are not a nine to five. I'm not going to say we are, Um, Mm -hmm. but finding people that thrive in that chaos and thrive in that high pressure environment where, you know, you're making the impossible possible. Um, and I think a big piece of that was really hiring for values. It's not just a poster you put up on the wall. It's finding like-minded individuals where you hire, you fire, and you reward based on people really living up to those values beyond just their skill set.
0: Uh, I, I love that you brought up kind of, you know, to employer branding. And it's so easily I miss, like misidentified and we ride this cycle, especially in Alberta where it's a a pro-employee environment, it's a pro-employer environment, and it's always felt like there was no balance in the center, but just like our customers, people are discerning now. They can go anywhere to work. So you actually have to create a compelling reason for them to come to join you. I love just the way that I, I, you saw my reaction. Yeah, well, they could go work at Apple or they could come work for us in Calgary. And you know, at, at first blush, that seems kind of off balance, but arguably you have to take the time to find out what actually brings it back into balance and gives you an advantage because there's going to be people that want your version of reality over the Apple version. Just That's a hefty comparison. That's got some weight to it when you say it out loud.
1: It absolutely does. And again, I think it's how do people drive impact? And we've we built an incredible team I couldn't be more proud of you know, the team of individuals we've been able to bring together and that strong values and vision alignment. Um, but I think impact is a big thing when we think of startup mentality as well as how do we make sure that you can really drive impact and change the course of what we're doing? Um, and I think that's a pretty big motivator as we look at who are the right people that want to join our team and what are they really motivated by as well.
0: And whether you're a three-person startup or a 500-person established company in Alberta that's looking to innovate and do things differently, it's always going to be about the talent eventually. You're always going to need the people to help you get there. Like, we have a process. We've got all this great technology to help us automate this and streamline that. But ultimately, we still need the people to use all those tools to create these amazing outcomes. So not to underestimate the value of employer branding and putting out there of, like, why, why, why us, not just your customers. It's, I just find it's easily forgotten when you've got, oh, no, but there's lots of people at work. I can find people. But can you find the people you need or want or the right fit for your culture that's and by the way they can live anywhere in the world now so you need to when they when they pop online your five-year-old website your out-of-date social feeds and the article that was written about you three years ago isn't maybe going to excite them the same way as it might for somebody who's got current content and is involved with the community and you know dot 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 dot.
1: no and you mentioned it earlier really we've been around for just over four years now for the first three, we tried to be as under the radar as we possibly could because it helped us in terms of how do we get to a size where we're not a you know little startup with a million bucks in the bank to serve these major enterprises to we've now raised over a hundred million and we've got you know the latitude and we want to compete on a global scale, we're ready to do so and really define a category within that blue ocean. And be the king within it it's really just been you know the past year and probably even less than that that we've kind of tried to take more of that that approach to really having a voice within the market because we felt like we were ready to really compete on a global scale
0: i appreciate this the stealth strategy and i think when <laughs> you guys first got on my radar was i think the series b race was it 70 75 like largest series b and i remember the headline i was like well, who are these guys and
1: is that is our turning or point or is
0: it <laughs> <laughs> how do i even say the name <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, that was very much the turning point. <laughs> that
0: was your coming out. That was your, yeah, we're here, we're here, we're, we're here and, and we're real. Well, Tiffany, I love what you guys are doing in Calgary and I love if I can help get it on someone and it's cement, not cement, just so yes. we can leave everybody <laughs> with at least knowing the name. That's a good step in the right direction, but incredible insights today. I love your passion I, I love what you guys have created and I love that it's a Calgary story. <laughs> this yes. is like, these are the kind of examples that give other startups hope. They give other people from different parts of the world, different parts of the country. They look in and go, "Oh, well, if that's going on there, there must be some other cool things going on." Talking about, you know, just even our brand as a city and our brand as a province. The more success stories we have of people doing cool things like you guys on a, on a global stage, the better that's going to attract everything from talent to investment to, you know, we, we're here. We already know there's a great quality of life here. We just need to let other people in on the uh, You know, it, I don't want it to be a secret. I want everybody to know.
1: <laughs> no, I am. I was absolutely with you on that. I think it's incredible to see the growth and that, you know, people are choosing to build their just like us. People are choosing to build and start their companies in Calgary and remaining here because it's very much competitive advantage while we're still competing on that global scale.
0: And that's the competitive advantage of just of just being here. That's it's refreshing to hear that because there's some other rhetoric. It's starting to go away. I'm just hearing more and more of these stories, and I think I'm just talking to more people that are <laughs> breaking past that next level. And there's there's so many good success stories here, uh, Tiffany. I don't want to eat up your whole day because like I could I could probably have 50 more questions. But thank you for everything that you shared. And um, what's the best way for people to find you as an organization? And what's the way best way for people to reach out to you if they're if they're so inclined?
1: Absolutely, um, certainly check us out on our website, sismen.com. Um You can check. Us out as well on LinkedIn, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, really any of the social forums. We're, we're constantly really driving some of that thought leadership and, and trying to really be an innovator in our space. So a lot of interesting stuff that we're doing, especially on the behavioral science front, which really sets us apart. Um, so I encourage you guys to check that out. Um, and for myself, certainly feel free to reach out to me, you know, anytime. Uh, email, LinkedIn, bookwork.
0: Fantastic. Been, it was an absolute pleasure, one, getting to know you and getting to understand your guys' story a little better. I really appreciate your trendsets.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Tyler. Honestly, an honor to be on your podcast. Love the work that you're doing in sharing these stories at an ecosystem level. I think it's so powerful.
0: Uh, thank, th- thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored. I'm honored. It's my pleasure to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you.